coaching outside in the snow for two hours. Literally couldn't smile. My cheeks were numb. Like, it was not used to not having a sweater on my face. So, I'm on the struggle bus, but I hear the sun is uh, coming out again soon. Um, some announcements. First of all, welcome to Gateway. We're happy you're here today. Uh, I recognize a lot of people, but not everybody, and that's good. Um, so, if you're new here, we do want to meet you. Uh, information table is in the back. Uh, did you guys get your val- parking validated? Awesome. You're on the ball. Well, if you didn't, you can do that at the information table. Um, also, children's ministry uh, is going on right now, so we do want to provide that for the kids here. Um, between ages of 6 and 10 years, sorry, Kevin, you can't go. You can go in for uh, children's ministry. Uh, membership classes, if you're interested in membership at Gateway, there's a connection card. You should all see that little um, square card right in front of you. And that we would like you to fill out if you're new or if you're looking to get involved somehow. Membership is one of the things that you can circle. Um, Service opportunities, uh, guest services, we set things up in the morning. Um, All of these are laid out by people, the signs for parking, all that stuff we set up. And we would love if other people want to join in on helping. If that's one way you feel like you want to get involved with the church, um, let us know. Circle that. Um, Wi-Fi code, we're in the digital age. If you need the Wi-Fi password, it is I love Pickwick, all lowercase. That's where we are, Pickwick. Oh, it's not that. How should I know? With a question mark? How should I know? How should I know? Okay, end it down. How should I know is your password. Um, also, prayer at 945, a uh, group of us, if you want to come early and pray for each other, pray for the city, uh, pray for this church, come early, 945. We're going to be together praying on Sundays, and we would love for you to join us. Um, another thing on this connection card, okay, you can fill it out if you haven't. On the back, these are growth groups, okay? Growth groups are what we feel to be pretty important as a part of this church. Three of the things which I'll be bringing up today um, more often, we want to, as a church, love God. We want to live in community and we want to serve the city. Uh, so, one way to live in community that is good and to grow in our faith is to get involved in a growth group. There's five locations, a couple in Ohio City, uh, Lakewood, the east side, and uh, downtown. So, if you're not involved, uh, please do that. And another thing, it's not on the announcements, but on these things that you can circle, events and signups, um, baptism is there. And I just want to, yet last week it was announced that I was going to be up here talking, and I really wanted to grab the mic and start talking because I love talking. Um, but there was a baptism, Olivia got baptized, and it was so awesome. And I loved it. Yeah, yeah, she did that. And it was like such a cool celebration. And that is on here. So if God's ever leading you to that, let us know. I love when that happens here at this church. Um, digital age. So since I'm up here, new to some of you, um, I think I kind of owe it to you to share a little bit. I have been a part of Gateway. I've been coming for over a year now. Uh, First heard about this from my brother Thomas, who um, is involved with uh, the worship team here. And uh, and I came and loved it, and I got involved with a discipleship group. Uh, We've been meeting for about eight months. We were meeting with Jason and uh, Max and Kevin Taylor. You're around Matt uh, as well. Um, When we could. Ideally, every other week we met, it didn't always happen, but it was a very intense time to meet and to be discipled uh, 
with each other. And this is a really good way for me to grow in my faith um, and to get involved with the church. And so for me, uh, I had lived in Rome a couple years, and having lived in Rome really made me fall in love with the city. Uh, Not just the city of Rome, but with the city. And so for me, Cleveland is the closest city. I now work and live in Hiram. I'm a soccer coach doing grad school there. And I love to be in the city. I love Cleveland. Uh, Our former president, Hiram, we just got a new president within the last month. Um, Our former president was an integral part of creating the Gateway District, uh, what you know of where you are. So Progressive Field, um, the Q, our very own East 4th Street, this whole district, this Gateway District, was created by our former president. And so I remember when he talked about what this was like, creating this city and bringing people in and what it looks like to see a city grow. And, and ever since he talked about that, it made me really want to be here. It made me realize how cool it is to be involved with something that's growing. And not just something that's growing, but something that is impacting our society. Um, cities shape our society. And if cities shape our society, Jesus needs to be in the city. That's why we're here. That's why I wanted to be involved with Gateway. And I hope that's why you want to be here. Um, And so when I found out that Jason was leaving Cleveland, I I wasn't shocked because I know that he is pursuing God's call in his life. Um, I wasn't at all worried for this church because I trust our eldership. I trust the leaders that are here. And when I'm here, I feel God's spirit. I, in this community, I, I feel it. There are so many people here that I'm connected to. Life is about personal connection, and that happens at this church. And so um, even though a leader's leaving, I am by no means worried about what will happen next. And I was in a pretty similar situation a year ago. Uh, I'm an assistant coach. The head coach left, and so that left me to help and be with the rest of the team. I was not casting long-term vision for the team or figuring out what we're going to do in the long haul. That, that wasn't my job. My job was not to get them to the end point. My job was to be with them while we were still growing, getting better, until somebody else came in that was going to give us this vision. And so for me, I, this role, this, I'm, not, I'm not the pastor. I'm the interim teacher-preacher. I'm going to just interim teacher preacher. I think that sounds good. That's what I am here. And, and so my role is just shifting a little bit. And when we have a new head pastor, it will shift again. And this happens when leadership changes, is that roles shift. And so I want each of you, just because I'm now becoming this, I would say it's the mouth, pretty obvious, which I love because I love talking, which you probably know. Um, just because maybe you're not becoming the mouth, there might be a way that your role is going to shift in this church. Um, And you might take on a new leadership role in some capacity. And if God is putting something on your heart, bring it up. If God's putting a vision on your mind, bring it up to the elders, the leaders, um, to me, and I'll pass it on to them. (laughs) But don't think that you should be stagnant because there's changes happening. Um... And so for me, one part of me taking this uh, was not that I needed this. I didn't feel like I needed to become the new interim teacher preacher at Gateway Downtown, but I felt called to it. And when I was raising support to be a missionary in Italy, I was needing to live by faith a lot. And I had my mentor reminded me often, if you're not living by faith, what's the point of living? And so for me, this is very much a step of obedience, a step of faith 
in, in doing this. And so I thank you for allowing me to be here, um, to take these steps of obedience. And already it is sanctifying in my life, sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ. I already have to sacrifice some things that maybe I wasn't before. I now am never going to coach on a Sunday morning because I'm going to be here. And so I've had to face my convictions head on, and I've had to change things by me taking the step of obedience. And so God is already at work in, in my heart, and thank you for allowing that to already happen. Um, and it will continue to happen. But that's enough about me. Uh, you're not here to listen to me talk about myself the whole time. Uh, we're going to learn from Matthew. We're going to continue through Matthew as we've been doing for, Jason said last week, about a year and a half now. Uh, we're now in Matthew uh, chapter 13. Um, verses 34, 35, and then 44 and 46. We're kind of skipping some verses based on what has been taught in the past. So let's stand together to read God's word. Uh, we stand for two reasons. One, because it is God's word. It is holy. Um, it is for us. And uh, two, because it's the sign of God moving in and through us. Matthew thirteen thirty-four. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for meeting us here. We thank you for your spirit that lives in and through us. Thank you for the community that we have here. We thank you that you go before us and you come after us. God, we pray right now that you will open our hearts, you will open our minds to hear the words that you have for us today. And God, I pray that I will step aside, and I will not get in the way of your words for what we have to hear. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Now, I feel as though I've kind of jumped in the middle of a three or a four-part sermon, depending on how you look at these related and these twin parables. Um, part of the reason our verses aren't in order today and we're skipping a little bit is because we already talked about the parable of the sower, uh, the farmer that sows the seeds, and I would call it the related parable of the seeds and the weeds that grows. Um, those parables, as Jason talked about last week, were uh, explained later by Jesus. And then last week we had the twin parables, um, which talked about the mustard seed and the yeast, okay, and this growth of the kingdom of God. So if you didn't hear these sermons, you can go to gatewaycleveland.com and listen to them. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know this for a while. All these sermons are online, and you can go listen to them later. Or if you miss, you can go listen to it, and it's awesome. Mine, I don't know if it'll be online. We'll see. We'll see. Well, we don't know yet. Right now, stream it. We'll see. It may get on there. Um, but following these twin parables, what we talked about last week, the, the mustard and the yeast, um, we talked about with this the humble beginnings of the kingdom of God and how this grows. And um, while these were twin parables, I just want to refresh our memory from last week. Um, while these were twin parables, there was a small difference. The, the mustard seed was the external visible sign of the growth of the kingdom. 
whereas the yeast was this invisible, inside, internal growth that we saw. So this mustard seed that we saw, we saw that it starts very small and it grows bigger to be bigger than all the other plants in the Israeli gardens. And that was why we saw this crazy growth from a grain of a mustard seed, which is one of the smallest seeds you can find ever, to a big tree. And it grows so big that birds come and they make their home. They build their nest in this tree. And so we look at Cleveland today and and I ask, is the kingdom of God a tree right now where birds are flocking and building their home in this city? And I don't know if it is. I don't know if right now we are a tree. But is the seed, is a mustard seed here in Cleveland? Jesus is the mustard seed. Is Jesus in the city? Yes, he is. And before a plant is going to grow, before it grows up, if it grows up, just straight up, it's going to fall down. Before it grows up, what happens? It grows down. It builds its roots. And so I ask, have you thought about this in Cleveland? Are there roots in Cleveland? Look around you right now. That's right. You looked right at them. And you said, yeah, these are roots. These people beside you are roots. So is the seed planted here? Are there roots? Yes. Are we a huge tree? I can see an empty balcony. So we might not be a huge tree. But this is what happens. This is the growth of the kingdom that Jesus talked about. So not only this external visible growth, but we also look then at the yeast in the dough and this mysterious and astonishing growth internally. And how when we hear as a community or personally, when we hear the gospel, how like yeast permeates through dough until the entire batch is affected, this happens with Jesus, with the gospel in our hearts. That when we hear it, it permeates through our entire life. So that whether whatever we're eating, what we're drinking, whatever we're playing, if we're praying, it's changing every aspect of our life. It's changing how we work. It's changing what we do with our money. It's changing every aspect of our lives. And all of this stuff, all this change starts from these small, meek, and humble beginnings like a mustard seed or yeast. So that was last week. We're going to get into the text this week again. Um, between the, what I just talked about and these next parables, one of them that's still up there, um, we get a break from the red letters. So if you're hard of seeing Jesus talking to the red letters, we're going to look at the black letters a little bit. Uh, verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. We're going to see why Jesus is teaching this way. So at this time in this sermon, Jesus was only speaking in parables because he wanted to meet people where they were. It wasn't enough for God to just come on earth as man. No, Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't just come so that we could see him and touch him and feel him and hear him. No, he even speaks on our level. He comes to us even now on our level and he speaks to us in plain language so that we can understand what he's saying. And why does he do this? It's explained in the next verse, verse 35. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. And this quote, this quote is quoting Psalms uh, 78, verse 2. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So Jesus speaks to us like this for two reasons. Uh, one reason is to fulfill the law of the prophets um, spoken by Moses, to fulfill what was said 
what was predicting the coming Messiah. So if we look at these prophecies, we would call these prophecies. If you look at the Old Testament and what the Old Testament was saying of a coming Messiah, we would say it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, because these prophecies were fulfilled in him. Well, Professor Stoner said that the odds of eight prophecies from the Old Testament, for eight of these to come true and be fulfilled in one man, the odds of that are one in ten to the 17th power, which is a lot, millions, more millions than I care to cover. The odds are not good for eight of those prophecies to come true from the Old Testament. There's over 300. So one reason he speaks in parables is to fulfill that prophecy. The other reason is to reveal to us the mystery of the gospel, which was hidden in God. Ephesians 3, 9 says to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So he speaks in parables to bring to light this mystery of the gospel. So when parables begin with, the kingdom of heaven is like, we better pay attention. Because there's a secret mystery that's been hidden since creation, since the foundation of the earth. There's a secret that's going to be released. And I like secrets a lot. I like solving mysteries. Okay, I like watching these shows where oh, I can piece this stuff together and I figure it out. Yeah, look what I did. I found out this secret. And so that's what we're doing here. We're hearing these parables because we're getting a sneak peek at this mystery, the kingdom of God. So here we are. We're back to the red letters now. Um, we're going to get a sneak Sneak peek at the kingdom of heaven, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, as we just said, the last twin parables, uh, the yeast and the mustard seed, were about the small, humble beginnings of Christ. So immediately following those parables, we get this one. So in case you're thinking lowly of the gospel because of how small it starts, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is of great value. Okay? This is what we see. And in order to show us this, he tells us of a man finding a treasure hidden in a field. In his joy, he sells all that he has to buy that field. So again, this parable is relatable. It might have been more relatable for people in that time. Uh, but let's think about how possible it would have been to find a treasure like that back in that time. Uh, where do you keep things that are of worth? Your values, your treasures, your earthly treasure. I, for me, I mean, money is an earthly treasure, and I don't have much of it, but I keep it in a bank. I don't even see my money. I have direct deposit, so whatever. I work when I need to, and they send it over to my bank, and it's in there, and it's safe, and I have it. Well, what if we lived in a time when banks weren't known for keeping your money safe? They weren't FDIC approved. They were known for taking your money. Well, you're not going to keep your money in a bank, well, okay, so I can, I'll keep it in my house. You know, I keep my house locked. It's, I've got a safe box, fireproof, all that stuff. Um, well, what if you were living in a time when kingdoms were conquering kingdoms and your house could get taken over at any moment? Well, you don't want to keep your treasures there. All of a sudden, now it seems like a pretty good idea that I'm going to go ahead and take what I have and I'm going to bury it in this field. That's pretty safe. It's not a bad idea. And the only people that will know that it's there are me and anybody else that I tell. So I could keep something very valuable there. Andy Dufresne did that. If you don't know that reference, it's okay. 
But the idea of stumbling upon a treasure like this, isn't that ridiculous? It literally happened a week ago. Like, I couldn't have planned this. It literally happened. The California couple, maybe we heard about this, maybe not. They're walking their dog on their property, and the dog saw this little bit, something sticking out of the ground. And so, did you guys hear about this? So they, they dig this up. They find, I think it was five cans filled of gold coins, $10 million dollars. This couple in California found $10 million on their property in gold coins from the 1800s. Um, now, they're linking this now to a heist, and it might have been stolen from the United States Treasury, so the government might be wanting this money back. So they might not be millionaires like they thought. Uh, but even this law of them taking this money back, uh, I'll tell you why they would get it back in a second here. Um, because the original owner can always get it back. But what if the original owner of a found treasure is nowhere to be found? Um, let's say there's a contractor hired to work on a hotel, and he finds thousands of dollars hidden in the ceiling of this hotel. Who gets that money? Whose money is that? The owner is not going to come back for it. So does the contractor who found this money, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, does he get this? Or does the person that owns the hotel, does the landowner get to keep this money? Um, this was actually a court case, Terry versus Locke Hospitality, in which the case ruled that the money went to the landowner. So even in Jesus' time, old rabbinic law, uh, the laws of the rabbis, they used Deuteronomy 22, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall, not, you shall take them back to your brother. If he does not live near you and you don't know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it will stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you could restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or his garment or any lost thing your brother has, which he loses and you find, you cannot ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. So if you find something, you better keep it. It's law that you can't ignore it. So you keep it unless somebody else comes for it. So like this California couple, they were going to keep it, but... Now the United States might be coming for it, so they might not get it. Um, but what about if nobody is going to come back for it? And so you find it. You find this treasure in a field. Well, who's going to get it? You found it, so does the finder keep it, or does the owner of the field keep it? Well, if the owner of the field is the same person that found it, the answer is easy. So go and buy that land, Right? It's easy. What a good idea. So with joy, he sells all that he has to buy that land because now he'll have the treasure. No questions asked. The next parable, 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So this time, instead of seeing somebody that's stumbling upon a treasure, we see a merchant who is seeking so similar to the last set, mustard seed and yeast, the small difference was this external or this internal sign. We now have the difference being somebody that stumbled upon this treasure and somebody that is seeking this treasure. It's a small difference. So to be a merchant was a career. And, and I would actually liken this a little bit um, to Storage Wars. Have we seen Storage Wars before? The show, uh, I don't even know. I don't really have TV, but I have seen the show um, when I've gone to people's houses that have TV. And so in this show, the idea of this is that people go, they see these storage units that are abandoned. So who's going to get this? Well, they're going to auction off the storage unit to people that'll buy, pay for whatever's in here. 
So they open up the storage unit, and they get to peek in there. They don't really get to move stuff. They look for, I don't know, in the show it looks like they look for two seconds. But. So they look for two seconds, and they see, okay, well, I saw a little bit of this tire. There's obviously a tractor that they used for racing against go-karts, and it's worth $100,000. I don't know. They've come up with all this stuff. So they sneak, peek into this storage unit, and they decide, well, I will buy this for a certain amount of money because I know I can sell everything in it for more then I paid for it, and that's how I'm going to make my living. I earn my living that way. I accumulate my wealth so that I can live by buying and selling. So this merchant was no different. He was going around seeking fine pearls that he, he knew what he was doing. He was going to go, he was going to buy, and he was going to sell these so that he could have his living. So instead of him finding fine pearls, he finds one pearl of great value. He realizes that this pearl isn't like the rest, He's not going to just sell this pearl and then continuing, continue living his merchant life the way that he does. No, he's going to sell everything that he owns and he's going to change his entire life to keep this one pearl. So it'd be like Storage Wars. They saw in this storage unit, they got a sneak peek. They saw what nobody else could see in the storage unit. And they realized, if I can get this storage unit... I'm not living the same way anymore. I'm not selling this stuff in this. Everything that I need is in this storage unit. And so they sell their cameras. They get rid of the camera crew. They take all the money that they have and they sell everything so that they can get this one storage unit because they're set for life if they get this pearl of great value. So this is the central lesson that we have from these twin parables, the unexplainable uh, the insurmountable, the infinite value of the treasure and the pearl. So let's answer a few questions about these. Uh, one, what is the treasure and the pearl? Two, how do we get it? Three, what must we part with? What do we have to leave to get this? And four, what do we get out of it? So the first question, what is the treasure and the pearl? I'm imagining most of you know what the treasure and the pearl is already, but... I have, in fact, not said it. You can look back. Apparently, we're going to post this. I haven't said what it is yet. But Jesus speaks in parables to make things obvious to us. And most of us probably have figured it out. And this is why Jesus speaks this way. But in case you missed it, and because this is the best part of all this, I want to be sure that you know that the treasure and the pearl of great value is Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.19 reminds us that for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. John 1.16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. It is fullness because of Jesus' fullness. Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything is hidden in Jesus. The treasure is Jesus. Jesus is the treasure and the pearl of infinite value. And this treasure is found... Number two, where is it found? We know what it is. Where is it found? It's found in the gospel. It's found in the field, the good news. We only find the treasure when we walk through the field or when we, see, when we seek the pearl. So what is the good news? The good news is that each and every one of us have been born separated from God's perfection. And we've been living an imperfect life. And the only penalty that we get for living this imperfect life is death. That's not very good news, Philip. Why are you talking up there? That's about the worst thing I've ever heard. 
Um, but we're not done here. This, this death that I pay is not just a physical death. And we see people die physically all the time. But this death that we pay is a spiritual death. This death, because I'm separated from God, this death that I pay sends my spirit away from God's holy and righteous presence forever upon my physical death. But the treasure, but Jesus, Jesus came to earth. He lived a perfect life without sin, without separation from God's good and perfect will. So he didn't have to pay any penalty. He didn't have to die, but Jesus chose to die. He chose to die a death that I deserved, that you deserved. And he conquered hell and death. Three days later, he rises again. And so what are we in right now? Anybody celebrate Wednesday? Ash Wednesday, we are now in this contemplative time of Lent when we think about what Jesus did before he rose again, what he went through for us. We're in this time. This is tradition. Sometimes people give something up so that they can be more focused on what God, what Jesus did for them rather than what they do every day. Maybe, maybe you've done that. Maybe you've given something up for Lent so that you can be aware of what Jesus did because whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is John 3.16. We see it at ball games all the time. Holding it up loud and proud. What's it really mean? Well, that's what it means. He came. That's the treasure. That's the pearl. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So that answers the first two questions. What is the treasure? How do we get it? That maybe seems too easy. Maybe that, that can't be right. Third question, what must I give up for it? What do I need to leave? What do I need to part with to get this treasure? Because we see in these parables, people are leaving something. They're doing something. So how does this relate to us today? Do I, to get this treasure, do I need to give up every single thing that I have? Do I need to leave every possession that I have? If I'm going to confess that Jesus is Lord, does that mean that all other lords in my life have to go? Yeah, so the first thing, number three, the first thing that I have to part with, okay, what do I have to leave? What do I have to part with? The first thing is sin. All sin must be sold forever. This is not to say that I become perfect and sinless. Philippians Um, three is the next one here. This isn't to say that in order for me to have this treasure, I have to be perfect. No. No, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So I press on. I don't think I'm perfect. I don't have to be perfect, but I press on because of what Jesus did for me. So I realize that Repenting and taking this treasure, taking Jesus, means that I press on in my parting from sin. This is sanctification. This is becoming more like Christ. For me to accept Jesus as Lord, I have to part with my delight of sin, with my secret yearning for sin. That thing that I want to keep doing. Well, I'm not perfect, but I press on to be more like Christ. And David echoes this in Psalm 66, verse 18. He says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, it was 
David, um, does anybody know King David? Read, read some of the Psalms. Read about his life. Was he perfect? Did he live a sinless life? Very far from it. But he heard from God. He wasn't yearning for those things. He wasn't cherishing iniquity in his heart. So it's the same for us. We must part from sin and everything that goes along with it. What else do we need to part with? I have to let go of anything that might hinder me from coming to Christ. This is different than sin because I need to be willing to let go of even good things. Jesus called his disciples and they followed him, even leaving their family behind in some cases. So we need to be willing to turn our back on things for Christ. We get rid of sin and we get rid of anything that might hinder us from coming to Christ. So it gets a little complicated now. Um, What else do we give up? Andy Davis put it this way. We have to give up everything because we're going to confront this and we have to give up nothing. Nothing first. You can't buy the kingdom. Selling everything doesn't get you this treasure. And if you think that you can buy this treasure or this pearl, if you think you can buy it, you're mistaken and you've missed the point. You can't sell everything to obtain this. This is a gift that you take. It is the treasure that frees us, not the giving of our treasure that frees us. I had a good conversation with somebody in the church about this. God's demand is to see him as the treasure, not out of a need for his one glorification, but because he is the true treasure, we have to see him as such in order for us to have it. We have to see him as the true treasure for us to have this treasure. So, you can't just give up nothing. You're missing the point. Give up nothing. But, in a sense, he is calling us to something. He's calling us to give up everything. So do I literally have to sell all of my earthly possessions to follow Christ? Don't be too quick to answer this. Look at the rich young ruler who asked Jesus how to get to heaven. And Jesus tells him to sell everything you own. And he walks away with his head down. Look how Jesus lived. Jesus lived this way. Matthew 8.20, he's lived... Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have possessions. So do we need to give up everything? Well, don't be too quick to answer this question. It's not just a rhetorical question. So is this required to go to heaven? Hmm. But it goes deeper than this. It goes deeper than just a yes or a no answer. What you need to do, you need to be willing to let things go. Everything we have needs to be in an open hand, held up to God, and being ready to be taken at any time. This, isn't, this is possessions. These are our treasures. This is possessions, yes, but it's not just our possessions and materials. This is everything that's in my life. This is my reputation. This is Every part of me. And so what does that mean if I put my reputation out and I say, God, you can take it? Well, maybe I have to talk about Jesus or share my faith with somebody at work that controls my promotion. Well, I don't want to do that. Then he won't like me. Well, put it in the hand. You're telling me that, you, you know, I'm, I don't have kids. You're telling me that I have to put my family in a hand? Yeah. Look at Abraham. He had his son Isaac. He had Isaac in an open hand. 
And he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Was God wanting Abraham's sacrifice? Was it Abraham's sacrifice? Was it him sacrificing his son that was credited to him as righteousness? No, it was his faith. It was his willingness to put his son in an open hand and say, I will give this to you. It was his obedience to God's call. And his willingness to, in these open hands, just say, everything that I have is yours, God. Because God cares. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Hear what I'm saying. God cares a lot more about our obedience than our sacrifice. God cares a lot more about our obedience than our sacrifice. God won't make you sacrifice what you love just so you lose what you love. But he might. But we need to put all our old treasures, all of these things, before we found the treasure, we need to hold these up to God and tell him, this can be yours. And in the meantime, I'm going to glorify you through these treasures that you've given me. I'm going to glorify you with my ability to handle money in the stock market, with my ability to run this business working with this company, the way that I save and I spend my money, the way that I use my talents, all these things that were treasures before I found you as my one true treasure, I will now give to you and they will now be used for your glory. Just because it's an open hand doesn't mean that it disappears, but it does mean that it will now glorify God instead of myself. And so that's the point. It's in a hand so that it glorifies God instead of myself. And maybe God takes it. Maybe he doesn't. So what we need to part with, we need to part with sin, anything that hinders us from knowing Christ. We need to part with nothing if I think I'm buying heaven. And we need to part with everything if I'm making Jesus my Lord. So the last question, what do we gain? I know the treasure is Jesus. I know how to get it. And I know what I need to give up. So what gain is there? What is it that makes this man joyfully go and sell everything that he has to buy this field? Um, C.S. Lewis helps point us toward the disposition of mankind in mere Christianity. He writes, uh, did, I don't know if we got this on the projector. Um, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like God's. They could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. So it's out of this hopeless attempt that has come nearly all of what we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of a man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing, C.S. Lewis says. So what we gain is his ability to have happiness and peace in him. What we gain is infinite. It's more than any hopeless attempt for happiness outside of Christ, which we all pursue. We all pursue these treasures on our own. If I follow Jesus I'll never look back and think, well, that was a mistake. Through taking this treasure, we gain a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just for heaven later. It's for Jesus now. It's for my life now. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. God of all comfort. What do we get? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's a lot of comfort. So what, what do we get? This is, this is what we get. We get an ability to have God and to share in with others God together in community. Love God, live in community, serve the city. So, how do we obey this scripture? Okay, we've answered the four questions. How do we now obey this? What are the applications to our life? The first application that I challenge you with is to take this treasure if you haven't already. If you haven't taken Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior that will bring comfort, give you everything, and will make your life complete, then do it. Right now, if you haven't yet, you just stumbled across it in the field. Or maybe you were a merchant in here seeking something else, this God-shaped hole in our heart. So how can we obey the scripture? Take this treasure if we haven't yet. The second application is our first ambition as a church. So if we don't know the next step is a member or an attendee of Gateway, if I don't know, well, how can I really, what, what am I really doing here as a part of this church? What, what am I really doing? Well, this gives, us, this gives us an action point. If we're a church who strives to do three things, love God, live in community, and serve the city, what can I take from this scripture? How can I apply this scripture to those things? The first one, love God. Before all else, love God. This week, love God. If you don't know how to be involved with this church, then this week, Love God. That is how you can be involved with this church. That's the start. Another way we can obey this text is to allow our joy for this treasure in Jesus to purify our other joys. We should function out of God's overflow in our life. And every part of our life should be joyful because we first have joy in Jesus. So these things that we're holding up, what do we do? We hold up all these other joys that we had, and they're being purified now by Christ's joy in us. I'm not striving to do these on my own anymore. They're not glorifying me anymore. They're glorifying God. God's joy in us is purifying those joys. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. We thank you that you've allowed us to be here, that you have opened our hearts and our minds, and that you've allowed us a sneak peek at the kingdom of heaven. Thank you for your invitation to love you, to live in community, to serve others, 
God, we want to love you. We want to put everything as hard as it is in an open hand, hold it up to you, and be willing to let you take it and see how that transforms our lives and see how that transforms our church. God, we love you and we thank you for what you're doing in this city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.